0: Good afternoon. Welcome to the F.A. Hayek Auditorium for today's book forum to discuss Gusher of Lies, the Dangerous Delusions of Energy Independence, a book published a few months ago by Public Affairs Press and written by our guest this evening, our guest this afternoon, Mr. Robert Bryce. If you didn't notice, the book is for sale out in the front, so if you haven't bought one yet, you can buy one after the forum. My name is Jerry Taylor. I'm a senior fellow here at Cato, and I'll be the moderator for today's event. For most people in Washington, or for many people in Washington, the first time they had the opportunity to make Mr. Bryce's acquaintance was in the pages of the Washington Post last January, when they encountered his op-ed in the Sunday Outlook section titled, Five Myths About Breaking Our Foreign Oil Habit. That op-ed caused quite a stir, and since then, the book that uh, he will be discussing today, Gusher of Lies, has been something of a minor sensation, at least within the world of public policy and energy wonkery. For a sample of the praise Mr. Bryce has received for his book, consider this from the Library Journal. Quote, With oil nearly $100 a barrel, everyone is clamoring for energy independence and a reduction in our reliance on foreign oil. Bryce debunks this notion, asserting that none of the alternative or renewable energy sources currently hyped, corn ethanol, cellulosic ethanol, wind and solar power, and coal to liquids, will free America from imported fuels. He blasts Republicans, Democrats, and presidential candidates, Al Gore, Robert Redford, environmentalists, and energy analysts for misleading the public about our energy needs. Providing compelling examples, Bryce identifies numerous reasons why the United States cannot wean itself off foreign energy. He posits that we must accept the reality of an increasingly interdependent global energy market and shift our thinking from energy independence to interdependence meticulously researched with copious facts nearly all footnoted, this illuminating and sometimes witty work offers another view of the current state of energy. Similar praise has been offered in the pages of the New York Times, the New York Post, and Kirkus Reviews, and there's nothing that I can really add to all of that. Mr. Mr. Bryce's articles have appeared in dozens of publications, including the Atlantic Monthly, Slate, the New York Times, the Washington Post, the American Conservative, The Nation, the Washington Spectator, and The Guardian. His first book, Pipe Dreams, Greed, Ego, and the Death of Enron, received rave reviews and was named one of the best nonfiction books of 2002 by Publishers Weekly. His second book, Cronies, Oil, the Bushes, and the Rise of Texas, America's Superstate, was published in 2004. Mr. Bryce spent 12 years writing for the Austin Chronicle. He now works as the managing editor of the Energy Tribune, a Houston-based newsletter. He also is a contributing writer for the Texas Observer and a regular contributor to to a Saudi business newspaper. He's appeared on numerous TV and radio shows that have aired on the BBC, MSNBC, and Australian Broadcasting Corporation. In addition, he's been on CNN's Inside Politics, PBS's The News Hour with Jim Lehrer, NPR's Fresh Air with Terry Gross, and Talk of the Nation. He's been writing about energy policy in American energy businesses since 1989. So please join me in welcoming Mr. Robert Bryce..
1: Thank you, Jerry. Um, the best response I heard on you know, after an introduction like that was that uh, that was a, uh, an introduction that uh, my father would have appreciated and my mother would have believed. Um, I just arrived yesterday from Austin, Texas, which is my hometown, and um, I'm told there are plans to increase tourism in the state of Texas. I don't know whether you all know know about this, but Texas, of course, is a big state. They try and attract tourists from other places, other states, other countries, and the tourism program has a slogan. It's called Texas. It's like a whole other country. Well, in light of the popularity of President George W. Bush and Dick Cheney, there have been some new slogans have been offered as uh, possible new ideas for the tourism program, and I thought I'd share a couple of them with you. One of the first ones then, and one of the ones that's been suggested the most often is Texas, three presidents, three wars, and we're just getting started. (laughs) Texas bringing up test scores by executing one retarded inmate at a time. Texas where a fellow can say things like, "misunderestimated nuclear and make the pie higher and still be elected president of the United States. And finally, Texas, we're just a little south of Oklahoma and a little to the right of Mussolini. (laughs) Okay, so now that the uh, requisite joke is out of the way, let me acknowledge Jerry Taylor. Um, He has really, and and the Cato Institute, they have really challenged my thinking on energy, and and, uh, I cite some of the things that Jerry Taylor has written in my book. Uh, because I think he has brought a really ferocious intellectualism to the issue of energy, and I think he—it's he, it's clear, the record is clear—that he, you know, his work on energy has been uh, influential, and it certainly influenced my thinking. So I'm very much in his debt for um, for his work on energy policy and energy discussions, um, and I'm also in debt to him for inviting me here today. So I really do appreciate that. Okay, so what am I going to what am I going to talk about today? Well, I'm going to discuss my book uh, and the thesis of Gusher of Lies, The Dangerous Delusions of Energy Independence. My talk is going to have five parts, and I'm hoping to just talk maybe 30 or 40 minutes, and then we can have some uh, uh, questions and some discussion. Uh, First, I'm going to give you a brief bit of background about uh, myself and why I came to write this book. Second, I'm going to discuss the concept of energy independence and why it has so much appeal. Third, I'm going to look at the push for modern this modern push for energy independence. Where did it come from? Who are the people who are promoting it, and why have they been so successful? Um, fourth, I'm going to talk about the false promises of biofuels and some of the other renewable thing, renewable energy sources that are being discussed now. And finally, I'm going to discuss the concept of decarbonization and why, amidst all the doom and gloom of today, there is room, I think, for some real optimism in, in when it comes to energy. So first, a quick introduction about myself. 47 years old, I was born and raised in Tulsa, Oklahoma, a town that for about 20 minutes was known as the oil capital of the world. Um, I think that, that uh, title is now clearly uh, Houston, Texas, but uh, Tulsa has always had a, a, a prominent role in the oil business, still a, a, a center for manufacturing of oil field equipment and uh, heat treating, uh, heat exchangers, et cetera, and there's still a lot of oil, oil and gas guys in Tulsa. Um, and so I grew up not in the industry. My dad sold insurance, but I grew up around a lot of people in the business, and it has always had uh, a, a great allure for me. Um, brief uh, discussion of my politics. I am a charter member of the disgusted party. I do not – I don't identify with the left. I don't identify with the right, the Republicans, the Democrats. Um, I have a disdain for uh, virtually all of the political discussions happening today in Congress and the presidential candidates uh, because I don't think they're addressing the real uh, crucial issues in this country today. And, you know, to name a couple, crumbling infrastructure, the falling dollar, uh, the parlous state of our, uh, of our educational system, um, and I could go on, but that's not the, the focus of my discussion today. It's clear if you look at my record, I, I come and have written for many years from the liberal left. Um, I make no apology for that, and nor is that any secret. Um, if you read my, my earlier two books, they were clearly written uh, from the left, uh, the perspective of the left. But when it comes to energy, I'm a liberal who got mugged by the laws of thermodynamics. You cannot come to an honest discussion of energy, I think, from a partisan agenda. If, if the laws of thermodynamics work, they work. If they don't, they don't. And that was really one of the motivating factors uh, for me to write this book, was to look hard at the rhetoric and look at the realities. And um, so the the laws of thermodynamics really forced me to become much more of a realist in terms of politics and energy. I'm not bragging, but I have the best job of anybody I know. Um, I get to write about, think about, interview people about the energy business, which to me is is fascinating from every every aspect of it from the drill bit to the spark plug from the political to the geopolitical to the uh, uh, ge- geology to technology energy business is just fascinating whatever whatever aspect of it you look at it is it, it is you know it, the scope of the industry is is is, is just it's mind-boggling five trillion dollars a year is my back of the envelope estimate for the size of the global energy industry. How did I get $5 trillion? Well, I looked at the BP Statistical Review for 2007. BP estimates that in, in uh, 2006, the world used about 10.9 billion tons of oil equivalent. Well, you, con- you convert tons of oil equivalent into barrels, you get about 80 billion barrels. And then I figured $60 a barrel, just to use a, a, a fairly conservative number, 60 times 80 billion, you come up with 4, 4.8 trillion, call it $5 trillion. I think it's a reasonable ballpark number for the value of the global energy business. Well, how much is $5 trillion? It's two times the nominal GDP of China. Energy isn't big business. Energy is huge business. And so when you, when, you know, as I look at this, I'm, just, I'm awed by the scope of it. And Julian Simon said it best. Energy is the master resource. And so as we you know, look at any part of our economy, any part of our politics, it is suffused in one way or another with discussions about energy, who has it, who, who needs it, Where's it going, who's refining it, who's moving it, etc. That number, five trillion dollars, leads me to the thesis of my, my book, uh, "Gusher of Lies." Simply stated, energy independence is hogwash. It is neither doable nor desirable. The idea that the U.S., the world's single biggest energy consumer, can be independent of the world's single biggest business, the energy business, five trillion dollars a year, is ludicrous on its face, and we are being insulted by our political leaders every time they tell us we should be energy independent. We are interdependent in everything, from iPods to fresh flowers, from sneakers to beer, from bottled water to cell phones, you name it. It's a global economy, and it is becoming more global every day. And the idea that we, as the single biggest consumer, will divorce ourselves from this industry is crazy. So I wrote this book... Because I was disgusted, a lot of my writing I do because i 'm mad. I also have too many opinions to keep them all to myself, um, which maybe is a character flaw, but nevertheless, I felt that it was it was absolutely essential, given the political environment today to write a book that looks at the reality of our energy of our energy situation, and as I said, it made me mad because I think this idea that that when it comes to energy independence we 're being lied to and we're being lied to on an almost daily basis. And why is that important? Well, that's a problem as I see it because we have growing disenchantment with our political process. And if we can't trust our politicians to discuss in an open and honest way the single most important commodity in our economy, what can we trust them on? Now, I know, know we can all say, well, that's just politics. Well, I think this is different. And I think if we cannot have an open and honest discussion about energy, it's hopeless to have an open and honest discussion about almost any other topic in American politics. My second point. Why is energy independence? Why is this idea so appealing to so many people? I think there are four things. One is the second Iraq war. Second, peak oil. Third, global warming, and four terrorism. I could add a fifth one, and just briefly, tangentially, it's scientific illiteracy and innumeracy. Uh, Briefly, people just flat don't understand science, and they don't understand the scope of the business that we're discussing. What's 80 billion barrels a year? It's a lot. Does anyone really have a handle on that? I think a lot of people say, oh, we can do wind and solar, we can do whatever and replace all that. Well, we can't, but I think that that's a part and parcel of the innumeracy in the population. But let me go back to the four main points. The second Iraq war, peak oil, global warming, and terrorism, I think, are all combined, and especially in the last few years, to create a kind of a free-floating anxiety among the voters in this country. And that free-floating anxiety, I think, is, you know, it contributes to this idea of people wanting to find something that they can believe in. And in the first few pages of the book, I quote James Carville, the Democratic strategist. In October of 2006, he put out a memo to Democratic candidates And and in the memo, he's talking about obviously the November of 06 elections, which were very important. And here's the quote from his memo. He said Democrats need to talk about the change they will bring, starting with major efforts to achieve energy independence. He goes on saying, and I'm quoting again Research shows that a candidate that says he or she will go to Washington and change things there and will work together with both parties to do major things to move the country toward energy independence has a powerful impact on the vote. It is the one issue that gives people hope. I think that says it. It is the one issue that gives people hope. You have all these fears that are kind of this free-floating anxiety. Iraq, people are disgusted, you know, $3 trillion is the latest estimate of the war. Peak oil, oh, are we running out of oil? Global warming, Al Gore says, you know, cataclysm is just around the corner. Terrorism, we hear about that nearly every day. Carvel says this is one issue that gives people hope. So if politicians can find a two-word phrase that gives people hope, they are going to use it, and they have. Thus, in in last December, Congress passed the Energy Independence and Security Act of 2007. President Bush talks about energy independence all the time. Uh, Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama, John McCain talk about energy independence all the time. All of them are, are saying it's just around the corner. Mike Huckabee, before he dropped out, said he could achieve energy independence in 10 years. Is it realistic, though, to achieve energy independence? I, I have a bunch of footnotes in my book. I'm not bragging or complaining, 850 or so. I counted them. Let me give you a few, few statistics that can, I think, maybe give you a few ideas as to whether energy independence is realistic. First, and this is one of the figures that I found that I, really shocked me when I found it, and I double-checked it, triple-checked it. The U.S. was a net crude oil importer in 1913, Eight years after Henry Ford started selling the Model T, the U.S. was a net crude oil importer. In the roughly 100 years that have passed since 1913, the U.S. has been a net crude oil imp- exporter only a handful of years. In fact, we are a net crude oil importer during much of World War II. Politicians second. Politicians obsess about the issue of Persian Gulf oil. Oh, we're going to be cut off. The Saudis this, the Kuwaitis that, we hate, this, we hate the Arabs. That's the rhetoric that we hear all the time. The facts are that in 2005, the U.S. imported 11 percent of its entire oil needs from the Persian Gulf. In 2005, we imported crude oil from 41 countries. We imported gasoline from 46 and jet fuel from 26. If there is a more global market than the crude oil and and oil products market, I can't tell you what it is. Let's talk about nuclear power. Nuclear now provides 20 percent of America's electricity – America imports over 80% of the uranium needed to fire its nuclear reactors. Let's talk about biofuels. Even if the U.S. converted all of the corn grown in this country into ethanol, it would only provide about 6% of the oil needs of this country. Okay, what about biodiesel? A lot of interest in biodiesel. And before I go on, I have to say I love Willie Nelson. You know, recently he started marketing BioWilly. Bio of new diesel, branded by Willie Nelson. And I love Willie. I love all his pot-smoking friends back in Austin. But the idea that biodiesel is going to solve our diesel needs is pure foolishness. Let me give you the numbers. U.S. consumes about 43 billion gallons of diesel fuel per year. Farmers can produce about 40, barrel, uh, 40 bushels of soybeans per acre. That converts into about 60 gallons of biodiesel. To replace all of the diesel fuel burned in America on an an annual basis, the U.S. would have to plant 716 million acres just in soybeans. That's 1.6 times all of the cropland now under cultivation in this country. Put another way, even if all of the 3.2 billion bushels or so that are produced uh, of soybeans that are produced every year in this country and were converted into biodiesel, it would only equal about 1.5 percent of America's total oil needs. So where did the modern push for energy independence come from? This is my third point. And before I go on, remember, energy independence, this idea is not new. Richard Nixon began discussing it in 1974. He promised that we would have energy independence by 1980. In 1975, Gerald Ford promised that we'd have energy independence in 10 years. In 1977, Jimmy Carter uh, was in the White House, and he warned Americans that the world supply of oil was running out, that uh, a crisis was imminent and that the U.S. was facing his, quote, the moral equivalent of war. Now, since the Carter era, the idea has stayed alive, but just barely. Uh, you see periodic uh, instances when the idea comes uh, flares up again after the first Iraq war. Uh, there were increasing mentions of it in the U.S. media. In Gusher of Lies, I, I contend, and I think the record shows clearly, that the modern push... For, for energy independence in America has largely come from the same people who were big boosters of the second Iraq war. Um, that argument, uh, I'm not going to hide it, has been a uh, fairly controversial part of my book, perhaps the most controversial part of the book. Reviewers have said, well, you know, he's a conspiracy theorist or he doesn't like the neoconservatives or whatever. Uh, you know, I understand their point, but I think the, 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 the record is clear. I have a chart in the first few pages of the book uh, where I chart the number of occurrences that that phrase, energy independence, occurs in the American media, and I use the Factiva database. And the increase in the occurrence of that phrase corresponds very clearly with the efforts by uh, a group of people, including uh, uh, former CIA Director James Woolsey, Frank Gaffney of the Center for Security Policy, and Thomas Friedman, the Pulitzer Prize-winning columnist from the New York Times, to promote this idea of energy independence. All of these men have been consistent in their bashing of foreign oil, their bashing kind of generally of the Arab states and 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 the petro states, um, and have been boosters of this idea of energy independence. And they have largely been successful because they have successfully conflated two issues and falsely conflated two issues, and that is oil and terrorism. Now, I make This is one of the first arguments I take on in the book, is this idea that you know, if we, only we reduced our oil consumption, terrorism would go down, because that is the, that's the point that they continually make. If only we used less oil, the price of oil would collapse, the petrostates would need to do something else uh, for their money, that would lead to reform, etc. In January 2002, Friedman wrote a column advising President Bush to launch, quote, his version of a race to the moon. Bush, uh, end quote. Bush should push, quote, a program for energy independence based on developing renewable resources, domestic production, and energy efficiency, end quote. He went on saying Bush should wean, quote, America off its dependence on Middle East oil, end quote. Friedman has frequently advocated a Manhattan Project on energy. And as the, book, and as the author of a best-selling book, was on the, on the New York Times bestseller list for more than two years, his book, The World is Flat, Uh, Friedman contends the world is flat, so all the countries of the world, the people of the world, have to compete on a level playing field for goods and services, and yet Friedman somehow argues at the same time and has written several columns arguing that the U.S. should build a, quote, wall of energy independence around itself. Now, how you have a flat world and a walled world, I can't quite understand, but I haven't won a Pulitzer Prize. Friedman says his contention is by buying less oil, using less oil, the price of oil will collapse, and when that happens, he promises, quote, I will give you political and economic reform from Algeria to Iran. That hasn't happened. And I quote Alan Reynolds, who I guess is here at Cato. I haven't met him, but uh, he wrote a very good piece in the National Review Online in 2005 in which he says he points to, I don't know if he was pointing specifically to Friedman or who he was, but he said this, this idea, this hypothesis that a collapse in the price of oil will lead to reform in the Arab and Islamic worlds has been tested. And he said... Uh, Uh, He said it's tested and been proven completely wrong. And he points out, rightly, that between the mid-'80s and the early 2000s, the price of oil was consistently under $20. And he said, where was the reform? It didn't happen. And it is spot on. There was a 15-year period where oil prices were, you know, uh, uh, the domestic production here in the U.S. almost vanished. I mean, it went down precipitously because domestic producers can't produce a, a, a a barrel of oil as cheaply as foreign producers. It wreaked havoc on on the domestic market. It, it caused a lot of pain in the Arab and Islamic worlds and in the petro-states. Was there reform? Not that I saw. Woolsey and Gaffney have published numerous newspaper columns on the issue, and in September of 2004, they were founding members of a group called the Set America Free Coalition. I attended that meeting. It was at the National Press Club here in Washington, um, and since that meeting, the said America Free Coalition has attracted a number of other sponsors. The Natural Resources Defense Council has signed on. Ethanol boosters, including to- uh, former Senate Majority Leader or Minority Leader Tom Daschle, have signed on. Um, it has attracted a wide range of, of people that, that, as I think Woolsey calls them, the, the cheap hawks, the sodbusters, and the, and the greens. This kind of odd coalition of people saying, oh, if only we had energy independence." All of these groups have signed on to this manifesto from the said America Free Coalition that says that the U.S. can no longer, quote, postpone urgent action on national energy independence. I contend, and I think it's true. Now, uh, Ken Green at American Enterprise Institute takes issue with this as well. He says, well, this push for energy independence correlates as well to the rising price of oil. He makes a valid point. Nevertheless, I think that there, uh, there are a few people uh, whose names I've just uh, mentioned who have successfully conflated the issue of oil and terrorism. They have used their position in the media. They've used their speaking engagements to press this idea forward, and, the, and it has largely been adopted by the U.S. media because very few people in the media understand the energy business. They under, very, very few understand the true global nature of the energy business, so this idea of energy independence has gained traction, and it has gained traction particularly among the uh, presidential candidates and in Congress. Um, Just a couple of numbers in terms of the the statistics that I found in terms of the mentions of energy independence. In 2000, according to the Factiva database, there were 449 stories that have that phrase, energy independence, that were published in the U.S. media. By 2004, the year the Set America Free Coalition meets, there were 2,600 mentions, and in 2007, there were 14,000 stories mentioning the phrase energy independence. My fourth point, the false promises of biofuels um, and renewables. I was in Houston last week, and I met a guy who worked for ExxonMobil. And he pointed me some figures in ExxonMobil's energy outlook, and I I looked them up. Now, before I give you the numbers, let's agree ExxonMobil is bad. Everyone hates big oil. That's very much in fashion these days. Uh, Big oil is a problem. You know, let's stipulate. (laughs) We can't trust anything big oil says because they're big oil. But... Let's also agree they might know something about the energy business. In their most recent energy outlook, the company forecasts to 2030, and they make a couple of assumptions. One is that biofuels, ethanol in particular, will grow by 8% a year. They also estimate that solar and wind and other renewable uh, sources of electricity will grow by 10% a year. Now, those are rapid growth rates by any measure. The doubling time uh, for uh, 8% growth uh, is 9 years, And uh, the doubling time uh, uh, for wind and solar, if if they're growing at 10% a year, is 7.3 years. That's rapid growth by any measure. Even taking those assumptions, ExxonMobil estimates that by 2030, biofuels, wind, and solar will only account for 2% of global primary energy consumption. Again, by 2030, even assuming that rapid growth, by 2030, biofuels, wind, and solar will only account for 2% of global primary energy consumption. Now, let's assume ExxonMobil is wrong. Let's increase that estimate by an order of magnitude and say it's 20%. Even if those sources provide 20% of our primary energy use by 2030, it still means we'll get approximately 80% from fossil fuels and other sources, biomass providing that fractional amount, maybe 5% or or more. percent. These are the same... even if we assume that, the order of magnitude, obviously fossil fuels are still going to be a big, a big player. But I took ExxonMobil's estimates and I looked at the IEA, the International Energy Agency. They come up with about the same percentage, about 2%. What about the Energy Information Administration based here in, in Washington? Well, in one set of data, they look out to 2030. They lump all renewables together, hydro, biomass, wind, solar. Their estimate for 2030, 7.6%. What if we isolate the U.S. from the rest of the world and we just look at wind and solar? Well, EIA data projects that in 2030, wind and solar will be providing about 70 billion kilowatt hours of electricity. That will be 1.2 percent of America's total electricity needs. To put it into perspective, by 2030, they expect coal will be providing 47 times more electricity than wind and solar combined. And hydropower will be producing four times as much as wind and solar combined. So again, even if we increase these numbers by an order of magnitude, we are still going to be using tremendous amounts of fossil fuels, and as I stated earlier, we are still going to therefore, therefore, de facto, be part of the global economy, whether that's in coal, or natural gas, or oil, or uranium, or you name it. So the point here is clear, that we have to accept this reality of energy interdependence, and the sooner we do so, the more the sooner we can have an honest discussion about our energy future. Now, before going on on this this point, let me make it clear: I'm not opposed to, to renewable energy. I live in Austin, Texas. I have 3,200 watts of solar panels on the roof of my house. Well, why do I? Why did I do it? Well, when I write about the energy business, I thought, well, this will be an interesting experience uh, for me. Find out what the economics really are. I'll put my money where my mouth is. Well. That's true to a degree, but the city of Austin also agreed to pay two-thirds of the cost, which is a pretty good sweetener. So I got a $22,000 photovoltaic system that's tied to the grid. I don't have any batteries at my house. $22,000 system for about $8,000. Now, my inverter just went bad a couple months ago, and it had to be replaced, so I didn't have any power for two months. But overall, uh, the economics have worked out like this. They provide the the photovoltaic panels provide about a third of the electricity that I, I use with my family. My wife and I have three kids. What are the economics? Assuming no cost of capital on that $8,000, the payback from those photovoltaic panels will be about 19 years. Without the city subsidy, and again, assuming no cost of capital, I lent the money to myself at no interest, without the city subsidy of two-thirds of the cost, the payback will be 58 years. So solar clearly has a long way to go uh, uh, to be economic let me move on to biofuels. I gave you the statistics earlier about coal and soybeans. Let me be as clear as I can about ethanol. This is one of the longest or perhaps the longest-running robbery of American taxpayers in this country's history. What we are doing with the ethanol, the corn ethanol scam, is the essence of fiscal insanity. We are making subsidized motor fuel out of the single most subsidized crop in America. Now, if you set aside the issue of the economics and you just look at it from a plain perspective of the fact that we're making subsidized motor fuel out of food at a time when there's no shortage of motor fuel and we are causing dramatic increases in the prices of food both here in the U.S. and globally, I, and I don't use this word often, this is immoral. We are rise, raising the price of food globally in order to feed uh, – uh, in order to deal with – Uh, The hijacking of the American Congress by a few congressional uh, uh, senators, a few members of the Senate and a few members of the House who have an inordinate amount of power when it comes to directing legislation, and and, uh, big ag is taking the American taxpayer to the cleaners. As we pursue this fiscal insanity, we are also subjecting ourselves to a myriad of other problems uh, that stem from the ethanol scam. These include, and are not limited to, the perversion of our presidential selection process, rapidly increasing food prices, worsening air quality, depletion of our water resources, pollution of our water resources, increased oil consumption, worsening greenhouse gas emissions. And as I said, that's just a partial list. Now, I could pick on John McCain here, Uh, and talk about how he has flip-flopped on his positions on ethanol. I'll leave it to you to go to his Senate website and look at what he says about ethanol and then go to his presidential website and see what he says about ethanol. But um, uh, I have a lot of respect for Mr. McCain, but he is a hypocrite on the issue of ethanol. Hillary Clinton was also a big critic of ethanol uh, when she was a senator from New York, but when she set her sights on the White House, she too has flip-flopped. The result is that Iowa, which has 1% of the United States population and even a smaller percentage of Iowa farmers and Iowa ethanol distillers and uh, ethanol interests, have hijacked the American presidential selection process and it has perverted our politics. What about greenhouse gases? There have been numerous studies over the last few months, uh, particularly one in Science Magazine that was published in uh, early February, that have shown that ethanol is worse in terms of greenhouse gases. Than fossil fuels. Now, this is a mind bender, but it takes and it takes a little bit of, of, of thinking about it to figure out why, but the researchers at Science Magazine, uh, or the research that was done by Tim Searchinger from Princeton University and the report that was done by, uh, and published in Science Magazine found that corn ethanol production, here's the quote, nearly doubles greenhouse gas emissions over 30 years and increases greenhouse gases for 167 years. Now, I could give you numerous other citations in terms of greenhouse gases if you like. Uh, I have uh, many of them in the book, and one of the appendixes, uh, I think the last appendix in the book, I cite uh, a a study done by two Colorado researchers who did estimates on CO2 emissions from uh, uh, various motor fuels and found that, in fact, gasoline has some of the least uh, uh, environmental effects of all the motor fuels that they looked at, and they looked at a lot of different biofuels, including cellulosic ethanol. Let's talk about subsidies. Between 1995 and 2005, federal subsidies for the corn business totaled $51.2 billion. In 2005 alone, according to data compiled by the Environmental Working Group, corn subsidies totaled $9.4 billion. That $9.4 billion is approximately equal to the entire budget of the U.S. Department of Commerce, which has 39,000 employees. Corn subsidies dwarf all other agricultural subsidy programs in this country. The $51.2 billion that I just mentioned is uh, twice as much as the amount spent on wheat subsidies, more than twice as much as the amount spent on cotton, four times as much as the amount spent on soybeans, and 96 times as much as was spent on tobacco. Let me go back to the issue of Uh, food and food prices. The ethanol scam has, in effect, created a new food tax that applies not only to every American, but will, I think, apply to many uh, uh, residents of other countries around the world. This new food tax amounts to approximately $3.72 for each gallon of gasoline that is displaced by corn ethanol. And that figure does not count any of the multi-billion dollar subsidies that I just mentioned or the 51 cent per gallon tax credit that is collected by the the ethanol producers and blenders. Those are not my numbers. The $3.72 number is not mine. That's data from a May 2007 report put out by the Center for Agricultural and Rural Development at Iowa State University. They, The researchers at Iowa State looked at how uh, ethanol production, which consumed about 20% of the American corn crop in 2006, how it affected overall food prices. They found that between July of 2006 and May of 07, the increased price of grain and the resultant increase in the price of groceries was costing every American $47. Now, I, I told Jerry about this earlier. There was a great quote in the USA Today Uh, Last month, there was a man from the Grocery Manufacturers Association talking about the ethanol mandates, and he said the ethanol mandates would, quote, make Stalin blush. He said this is not – he said some uh, legislators look at ethanol as a silver bullet. He said ethanol is not a silver bullet. It is a hand grenade. Um, I think there is rising uh, anger in this town and across the country at the issue of uh, at the cost that we're seeing in terms of food prices, and uh, we may see some uh, relief on the biofuels front in the near term, although uh, how much relief I don't know. What about solar and wind? I said that I mentioned earlier I have solar panels on my house. Uh, I just wish they worked a little better and, and paid off a little sooner. Wind power is fine, but in my book, the hype over wind power is exceeded only by the hype over ethanol when it comes to outrageous claims. The problem with solar and wind is that they are incurably intermittent. Sun doesn't shine at night. Wind doesn't blow all the time. And and, and that is the key problem here. You can't switch these on and off and do so in a way that is predictable. Um, therefore, we are always going to have to rely on with a short, uh, short of a new system of storing electricity, we're going to have to rely on spinning reserves of power plants that are fueled by conventional sources, coal, natural gas, oil, or nuclear. Let me talk about that issue of uh, of the, the stochasticity of wind and solar can only be resolved if we had a way to store massive amounts of electricity. In the latter part of the book, I talk about uh, uh, the super battery prize, an idea that I had. I uh, kind of borrowed it from Voslav Smil, who's a very clever energy writer. Um, And my idea is simple. Let's offer a billion dollars to any inventor who could come up with a compact, affordable system that can store multiple kilowatt hours of electricity. And let's offer $10 billion to the inventor who can come up with, uh, using those same attributes, a system that can store multiple megawatt hours of electricity. If we had that, solar and wind suddenly become more viable. Uh, Homeowners, if they could have a battery like this, could feed power onto the grid when it suited them, when they thought demand was high and prices were therefore high, but more particularly for electric utilities who have an undulating demand on a 24-hour basis. Demand goes up in the morning when people get up and brush their teeth and make coffee uh, and goes down during the day when they're at work and goes up again in the afternoon when they come home and turn on the TV and the air conditioner. If you had a battery that could flatten out that demand, uh, that would be a tremendous savings in terms of energy for the electric utilities. But to be clear, I'm not sanguine about this happening. Uh, Thomas Edison worked on batteries for many years. In his own day, he spent something like $30 million in today's money of his own cash trying to perfect batteries. He worked on lead acid batteries. He worked on alkalines. He improved both, but ultimately failed in getting a battery that was high enough capacity to to achieve what he wanted, which was a battery that could really work in delivery trucks. Gasoline was just a better fuel, and ultimately that was what won out. And now, of course, uh, it's diesel. But nevertheless, if we had a super battery, that would be the game changer. That is, in fact, the magic bullet. Okay, my last point. Uh, decarbonization and why there is a reason for optimism. There is good news here amidst the talk about peak oil, global warming, and the good news is something called decarbonization. The carbon intensity of the global economy is decreasing. That is, we are moving toward cleaner and cleaner fuels. Um, And this trend of decarbonization has been ongoing for two centuries, and it's good because it's happening without any government mandates, Uh, and it's not happening uh, due to any subsidies or anything else. Why is it happening? It's because consumers are always looking for clean, dense fuels so that um, if if a consumer had a choice between cooking over a wood fire or a natural gas or propane stove – He's going to choose natural gas or propane. It's more easily regulated. It's cleaner. No smoke in the house. Um, And if they had a choice between reading by electric light or candle or kerosene lantern, I think most people would choose electric light. It's easier to manage. You switch it on. You switch it off. It doesn't heat up the house. No smoke. Um, So how do do we understand decarbonization? Well, you understand it by looking at uh, the ratio of carbon to hydrogen atoms in the fuels uh, that are most common. From prehistory through, say, the 1700s and 1800s, wood was the dominant fuel. Well, wood has a carbon to hydrogen ratio of ten to one. That is, ten carbon atoms for every one hydrogen atom. But wood, of course, lost out to coal, beginning really in the 1800s, um, and coal was a dramatic improvement. It <clears throat> has a carbon to hydrogen ratio of two to one. Coal, of course, was destined to lose out in oil to oil, particularly in the transportation sector. <clears throat> Because oil has the virtue of being cleaner, more dense, and a carbon-to-hydrogen ratio of one to two, a fourfold increase uh, over that of coal. But over the coming decades, natural gas, CH4, one carbon to four hydrogen atoms, is going to be, I think, the big winner in the 21st century. Uh, again, carbon-to-hydrogen ratio of one to four. Um, This trend toward decarbonization and toward cleaner fuels was best described by Jesse Ausubel, the director for the program at the Human Environment and a very smart guy. Um, He's one of the originators of this concept of decarbonization. He wrote recently that this trend toward decarbonization may waver as countries like China and India industrialize, and they use coal. He also, I spoke to him a couple weeks ago, and he pointed to Brazil. He said, actually, uh, Brazil is carbonizing, and that is a reflection of the the tremendous success that Petrobras, the national oil company in Brazil, has had in deep water exploration. And he said, so there are a couple of countries that, in fact, are going the other direction in terms of this decarbonization trend, Brazil being a a, a real example of that. But he said, even though, uh, Ossebel's quote again, he says, even though the trend wavers, quote, over the long term, hydrogen gains in the mix at the expense of carbon, like cars replacing horses, color TV substituting for black and white, or email gaining the market over hard copies sent through the post office. There's more good news. Between 1965 and 2006, according to BP Statistical Review, Consumption of natural gas grew at far faster rates than did the consumption of coal or oil. Now, I'll grant you, natural gas is starting from a much smaller base than coal or oil. But nevertheless, during that time period, global gas consumption increased by 335 percent. Oil consumption, meanwhile, increased by 168 percent and coal by 108 percent. New gas reserves are being found at faster rates than our new oil reserves. Again, according to BP, between 1990 and 2006, global gas reserves increased by 37.7 percent to about 181 trillion cubic feet, while global gas reserves increased about half as quickly, by, increased by 20.7 percent to about 1.2 trillion barrels. Those gas reserves are likely to last longer than our, our existing oil reserves. The reserves-to-production ratio for natural gas is about 63.3, that is, at current rates of extraction. Uh, gas reserves that we have will last about 63 years, whereas the reserves-to-production ratio for oil, known oil reserves right now is about 40.5. Now, environmental groups should be cheering this increased use of natural gas, but they are not. Why? Uh, you know, I think they equate anything uh, involving hydrocarbons means big oil, and as I discussed earlier, big oil is bad, and therefore they are not interested in natural gas. In fact, the Sierra Club had a press release just the other day making it clear they don't like natural gas either. They like solar and wind, um, and anything else uh, that isn't solar and wind they are just not interested in. Uh, I'll briefly talk about natural gas vehicles while we're promoting the ethanol scam and paying dearly for it. Natural gas vehicles are largely being ignored, which is rather uh, remarkable given that Brazil, which is held up as a great example of the power of ethanol, has 10 times as many natural gas-fueled vehicles as the United States, even though the United States has more than 10 times as many motor vehicles as Brazil. Natural gas vehicles offer a lot of opportunity. Yes, they have more, uh, more upfront costs but we import 60% of our oil. We only import uh, 20% of our natural gas. So, again, this is good news. The growing gas consumption is good for consumers all around the world. As energy consumption rises, so do income levels. And that is an absolutely essential point. As we look forward in an interdependent energy economy, Uh, we have to remember that there are today 1.6 billion people who do not have access to electricity. There are another 2.5 billion people, approximately 40 percent of the world's population today, are cooking with traditional biomass, dung, wood, straw, um, and this is causing enormous health problems. According to the World Health Organization, about 1.3 million people per year, mostly women and children, are dying from respiratory ailments caused by poor indoor air due to traditional biomass. Only HIV-AIDS, malnutrition, lack of clean drinking water and sanitation are greater health threats than the problem of indoor polluted air. As Fatih Barol, the chief economist of the International Energy Agency, put it, Access to energy is a prerequisite to human development. And as we go forward, the increased use of gas, the increase of energy generally is a positive development and one that we should be cheering. I'm concluding now. The conclusion here is we have reason to be optimistic. The 18th century was largely the, the century of coal. The 20, uh, I'm sorry, the 19th century was dominated by coal. The 20th century was dominated by oil. With any luck, the 21st century will be dominated by natural gas, and I think that is just what we're going to see. A few days ago, I talked to my friend Mark Mills, who was the co-author of a very interesting and provocative book um, called The Bottomless Well. And after you buy two or three copies of my book, buy a copy of his book. But he told me, he said, you know, it's easy to be pessimistic. It takes work to be optimistic. And I think that that's right. And I think optimism optimism, is an essential ingredient when looking at energy in general and more particularly at the energy business. So while there are a lot of reasons that we should be worried about the future, and I've named a few of them, there are reasons to be optimistic. Energy consumption is bringing the developing world uh, into the modern world, um, and that's having, uh, well, that's having an effect on prices. We all know that. It's also bringing millions of people out of poverty, and that's a very good thing. So I'll return to where I started uh, in this discussion, which is the theme of, of 2008. The key word for energy in 2008 is most assuredly not independence. Rather, it is interdependence. Walt Disney was right. It's a small world after all, and the world is growing smaller every day. Whether the issue is energy, the global uh, global carbon dioxide levels, banking, communications, the free flow of people, goods, or ideas, the world is an interdependent organism. And the sooner we accept that interdependence, I think the sooner we will all prosper, and that is what we should be looking forward to. I thank you very much for your time, and thanks again to Jerry Taylor.
0: can tell that Robert is from Texas and not Washington since the degree of optimism, I think, is inversely correlated to your proximity to Washington. Um, Robert, let me press you on a couple of things that you write about in your book. Um,
1: I'd be disappointed if you didn't, Jerry.
0: They're admittedly a bit tangential to your central argument about energy independence, but they're important issues that are worth some consideration nonetheless, I think. Let me start with your discussion of energy security. Um, You argue that given the ramifications of a supply disruption in the Persian Gulf, quote, an ongoing U.S. military presence in the Persian Gulf has become a necessity, end quote. Now, I'm kind of skeptical about that proposition. I mean, first of all, isn't it true that a U.S. military presence in the Persian Gulf in many ways increases regional instability and thus the prospects of supply disruption? I mean, after all, bin Laden claims that the main reason for his jihad against the United States is the presence of U.S. military forces in Saudi Arabia. That was a direct consequence of an earlier attempt at regional stabilization. And second, isn't it reasonable to believe that if the United States were not supplying security services to oil producers, that oil producers would pay for that security themselves as long as the return they got from security were greater than the returns they might get from other investments? I mean, oil producers in the Persian Gulf certainly have enough money to pay for their own security needs. They paid for a big chunk of the first Persian Gulf War. And they have even more incentive to do that to ensure that their oil reaches global consumers than us, the global consumers, might have. So, sure. Okay. Um, In your discussion of global oil markets, uh, you claim that the Saudis have served as a moderating influence on the OPEC cartel and, quote, Have generally sought to stabilize global oil prices at levels that are good for both consumers and producers. While I know that the Saudis would like us to believe that, I have precious little evidence to back that proposition up. Uh, Oil economist Maury Edelman once wrote that, quote, we look in vain for an example of a government that deliberately avoids a higher income. The self-serving declarations of an interested party is not evidence. Now my review of the evidence confirms the truth of Edelman's general observation, but maybe I missed something. Can you identify those instances where the Saudis left money on the table to play this moderating role that you ascribe for them in energy markets?
2: Okay.
1: Um, Let me take on the the military occupation aspect first. Um, I take your point, and one of the points that I make in the book is that there has been a backlash, there's no question, in terms of America's occupation of the Persian Gulf. and. I would argue that, in fact, America has far overextended itself in terms of military occupation in the Persian Gulf, and in many, in many ways, in uh, fact, most ways, it has been f- f- counterproductive. Uh, there's no question, I think, that uh, the second Iraq war has been counterproductive in terms of energy policy, and, and we could discuss other policies in terms of America's long-term interests. Um, so what is the solution? And I, I, in the book I discuss this idea that, in, uh, and it's not my idea, um, uh, I'm, I'm trying to remember the gentleman's name. He's now at uh, uh, Liberty Institute, or I'm sorry, Independent Institute. Um, he makes the point that in fact the Europeans and in fact the Chinese and other countries are free riding on the U.S. in terms of our security commitment in the Persian Gulf. Why is it that the U.S. has decided the security of the Persian Gulf is our, our domain and our domain alone? I think the more, more, more uh, rational policy for the U.S. is to go to these other countries, particularly the Europeans, the Japanese, and say, look, This isn't our job. We only get 11 percent of our oil from the Persian Gulf. You get 50, 60, 80, 90 percent of your oil. By golly, you should be paying your fair share of the freight here. And in fact, we haven't done that. And that's a diplomatic issue. Whether we can achieve that, I don't know. And whether we should unilateral, unilaterally withdraw and say, okay, we'll have at it, I think that that is not necessarily the best choice for us. Yes, I'm, I'm uh, overall saying we need to let the market work. Uh, it is, it is a, a, a painful point, but it is one that is clearly true. China is buying every barrel of oil that it needs on the world market, and they don't have a single soldier in the Persian Gulf. We have a couple hundred thousand, if you count the, the soldiers in Kuwait and, and Iraq. Um, The petro-states and security, I take your point. There's no question the Saudis should be paying more of the freight in terms of their own internal security. They have the the Saudi Saudi Arabian National Guard, which is in theory their – uh, the, the force that protects all of their oil installations, and they have something on the order of twenty or 30,000 uh, 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 police just monitoring their energy infrastructure. So they are paying a substantial amount to maintain that. Some of that money, in fact, is going to American contractors to make sure that they ride herd on the Saudi Arabian National Guard. But, yes, the U.S. has become the de facto backstop in security for the Saudis. There's no question about that. But uh, and, and I won't argue your point. They should be paying more of that that, that freight. Your final question, the Saudis is moderating uh, as a moderating effect. I think that this is clearly true. You look at the OPEC uh, meetings of recent vintage and who have been the the, uh, the the forces that have been agitating for higher prices or switching to the euros it's been Uncle Hugo Chavez in in Venezuela and uh, Ahmadinejad in Iran arguing for uh, uh, lower quotas higher prices and I think the Saudis have said and rightly that well that could hurt our long-term interests. Our long-term interests aren't necessarily in seeking the highest price we can get because as higher prices, the higher prices get, the more that is going to erode demand, and the Saudis don't want to erode demand. I think there is also, my read of the Saudis, I was in Saudi Arabia two years ago, they see their role not as necessarily courting the U.S. or as their, their primary role in OPEC, although they are by far and away the dominant influence in OPEC. They see themselves as something of a trusty Globally, for the oil reserves that, that they have, particularly for their for other Islamic countries, they know that higher prices are no good for the one point two billion Muslims around the world, and most of whom live in poverty. They want a moderate, fairly moderate price, and I quote Ali al Naimi in the book saying you know uh, 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 the the best price is one that is affordable to both both sides the producers and the consumers that that is in fact energy security when the producer can af- can get a good rate of return and keep it keep producing and the consumer has a price that isn't uh, isn't punitive and can that they can afford and afford over the long term so yes I, I stick by my my point that the Saudis have in fact been a moderating influence particularly when you compare them to the more radical uh, uh states like uh, Iran and Venezuela who are clearly <coughs> don't have the interests of the U.S. or the West at, uh, uh, at hand.
0: Well, I think we have to differentiate between statements and actions. They're two very different things. Saudi statements certainly sound very moderate. Only five years ago, I remember the Saudis in 2003 were sticking to this argument that the ideal, world in oil, the ideal oil world is a world in which prices varied somewhere between 22 and and, 28. and by God, if they got past 28, the Saudis would swing into action. Sure. And I also remember last August when prices dropped down to 60, the Saudis had a virtual heart attack and demanded that they, they established that, no, 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 we're going to fight this price. We're going to move it up from 60. 60 is the new floor. And just last week at the OPEC uh, meetings, they said, no, $110 oil is okay by us. Now, what happened to this 22 $28 price ban? Well, what happened to it is it never really existed. They were making virtue out of necessity. They saw the markets, at least at the time, wouldn't give them more than 28. So they said, you know, 28 is our intention. But as soon as it became obvious they could get more from the market, they got more from the market. This idea that, you know, the Saudi statements about the concern for economic growth abroad and all of that translates into production behavior that's somehow unique within OPEC, whereas everybody else is trying to get high price but the Saudis. If you look at Saudi production decisions, since when have they issued high price? I've never seen any example of it. They always act as profit maximizers. and There's nothing wrong with that. They're economic actors. They're businesses to make a profit. I don't horsewhip them because they're not serving the U.S. economic interest. But, my God, this idea that the Saudis are somehow sacrificing themselves for U.S. and global economic growth, whereas all these other OPEC members are out there maximizing revenue, seems to be belied by 30 years of history. They've never acted that way.
1: Oh, okay, fair enough. I'll, I'll you know, I, I make your point at volume. <laughs>
0: I had a few cups of coffee, yeah,
1: so I hear. <laughs> um, a couple points. One is, you know, I, I take your point, but the, uh, on those those issues. However, look at the falling dollar. You know, the price of, of crude in euros has not increased at nearly the rate as has the price of crude in dollars. Um, second. I think there's an argu- argument to be made about the lack of OPEC's ability as a cartel. You know, we can we can we can bash the Saudis, we can bash the Kuwaitis. You know, pick a target, the Iranians. But what's a cartel? A cartel is an entity that can move the price either direction. Right now, I think their only their only ability is move uh, ability is to move the price up. Now, whether they even have a desire to move the price down, I take your point, but. From everything that I see and everything that I understand, there is no spare capacity no, to I, be had to move the price down. No, I think so, that's absolutely so, true. so are they, in fact, a cartel anymore? I, I think that's an
0: open question. If there's no reserve capacity, they certainly are constraining supply. And you're absolutely right. I don't believe the Saudis uh, – Bob Samuelson had an op-ed on this in the Post last week, and I, I didn't think very highly of it. The idea that the Saudis are contributing to price I don't think is, is true at the moment because they're not holding back any light, sweet, crude at all. In fact, nobody is.
1: Because well, they, they, can't, they, can't, they, can't, they can't afford to. And, and there's a there's a very clear correlation, I've seen the graphics that we published when in Energy Tribune a few months ago, that as the uh, available spare capacity globally has declined, the price has increased. So whether this is a function of OPEC or the Saudis or whoever we want to demonize, it's also, uh, I think, a, a, a very clear correlation between the lack of global spare capacity behind the valve and w- increasing worries about available capacity and the increasing influence of the paper market on the overall price of crude I, I globally. Think,
0: I think that's absolutely correct correct, but if the Saudis truly thought that oil prices above $28 a barrel were a dire threat to their treasury and the global economy, which they believed no, no more recently than August of 2003, you would expect to see some amazing set of investments in upstream development capacity that we're not seeing. So I, I think that when it comes to the Saudis, they are a very good PR operation. Uh, and I guess that's what you need in, in, in global oil markets. But I, I don't think that PR m- makes,
1: Chav- matches Chav- up. Chavez needs behavior. a better PR operation.
0: Now, let me go on another question. It was interesting to me that to see that your relative comfort with Saudi behavior in the book was echoed later on in your book with your comfort with uh, OPEC's forerunner, the Texas oil cartel, as organized by the Texas Railroad Commission. Now, you argued in the book that the Railroad Commission, quote, brought stability to a chaotic market. Without the cartel, oil producers were constantly whipsawed by prices, going back and forth between boom and bust, between underproduction and overproduction, as prices rose and fell in chaotic patterns. In the absence of the cartel, producers rushed to get as much oil out of the ground as they could in order to profit before the market became even more saturated with oil, unquote. Um, A few questions arise from that statement. Uh, first of all, one can make the same argument about any non-conspiratorial commodity market. They're all com- characterized by boom and bust very frequently. So aren't you implicitly arguing that producer cartels would be a good thing in all commodity markets? Second, is there any evidence to suggest that cartels actually promote price stability? It seems to me the historical evidence is mixed. I can find examples where it looks like they have, examples where it looks like they haven't. Uh, but to the extent to which cartels introduce added uncertainty to markets, they often make markets more, or not, or less, not more stable as a consequence. Third, even if they do promote price stability, what reason is there to believe that stable but high prices all the time are somehow better for consumers than unstable but low prices most of the time? And finally, while you rightly criticize President Bush, the first President Bush in your book, for supporting oil import quotas as a congressman in 1970, isn't it true that those quotas were being offered as a necessary operation to salvage the crumbling state production quotas in Texas that you now champion?
1: Um. Let me see. Arguing for cartels at Cato Institute. Is that a good career move? No, I don't think it is. Um, <laughs> let me address the Railroad Commission. Um, I understand where you're going with your question in terms of the cartel. What happened with the Railroad Commission? You have to understand the historical, what was happening in Oklahoma and Texas and really the, glo- the in the American oil market at that time. The, the, East, the discovery of the East Texas field uh, by Dad Joyner in 1931, I believe, um, led to an incredible flood of crude into the global market. Um, at that time, in some uh, oil, oil towns in Texas, water was selling for more than oil. A cup of water was going for five cents and a barrel of oil was going for a nickel or four cents or something like that. So you had this incredible uh, system of over and under supply, and as I point out, the market was being whipsawed back and forth between oversupply and undersupply, so that you know producers were being forced into business, out of business, um, and there was a, a glutz on the market. Um, oil is a is a margin business a very thin margin business in terms of oversupply and undersupply now i take your points about cartels and the, and i'm not arguing in any any way shape or form for monopolies and i'm not arguing that opec is necessarily a good thing what the railroad commission did however by essentially by with a uh, uh, federal uh, federal mandate the Conley uh, the Conley hot oil act prevented uh, or essentially gave the railroad commission this cartel power to regulate production why was that good? Now, I will argue that, it, in fact, it was a good point because it, first and foremost, it conserved the resource. The, what was happening at that time was producers, if they had uh, two producers, had a well that was going into this same uh, reservoir, they had two wells or three wells or six wells, they were all pumping it out as quickly as they could, regardless of what their neighbor was doing, because they knew if they didn't pump it out, their neighbor would. Well, what was happening then was that the reservoirs were being depressurized and and tremendous amounts of oil were being forever lost that could never be produced because it was being produced in such a chaotic fashion. So the Railroad Commission came in and they unitized the field. They said, okay, we have six wells in this one reservoir. We'll apportion the ownership, one-sixth each, and we'll apportion the ability to withdraw from that reservoir to each owner. By doing so, they brought price stability, but more importantly, I think over the long term, they conserved the resource because they kept the reservoir's integrity. In, in place and allowed the production of more oil over a longer period of time that ultimately was to the benefit of the state of Texas and to the state of Oklahoma and to the other producers, that that was the ultimate rationale. It was not necessarily to say to any of the independents or the major oil producers, we're going to make you rich. It was about the state looking after its own long-term interests in terms of taxes. Yes, it brought oil to the market. Is that, was that a good thing? I think, in retrospect, it clearly was a good thing. And uh, even though uh, you know being here at Cato and arguing in favor of a cartel is not necessarily uh, the best uh, the best approach, I think it's clear that the Railroad Commission was in fact a stabilizing influence that was net positive. And where did OPEC, in a in a curious act of uh, uh, a curious mimic of history, I, in my book uh, "Cronies," I, I talk about Abdullah Tariki, who was the very first Saudi oil minister. Um, Tariki was also the very first Saudi who was educated at the University of Texas. He got his master's degree in, in patrol, or I think in geology at UT. Um, later, Jim Tanner was a reporter for the wall street journal. and I write about this in cronies and Tanner was at an OPEC meeting in Vienna and Tanner had graduated from uh university of Texas as well. And he went up to Tariki, um, who was, uh, called the red Sheikh, and was well known, a uh, uh, very kind of flamboyant guy. Um, after Tariki went to UT, went out to Midland and worked in the oil fields in Midland and then went back to Saudi Arabia, Tanner was a graduate of UT, as was Tariki. He goes up to him in Vienna and says, uh, well, uh, you know, uh, sir, we both went to UT. He said, what did you study when you were in Austin? And Tariki replied, I studied the Texas Railroad Commission. The model for OPEC came directly from the Railroad Commission. Now, we can argue whether that's good or bad. I think if you're, if, you're an American oil, if you're an American oil producer, you're on the side of OPEC. Every day of the week, because those high prices allow domestic producers to compete in the market in a, in a, on a more favorable basis.
0: Oh, you, if you recall, I didn't ask you whether it was, a good, for, whether it was good for producers to have a cartel, because clearly it probably is, but whether it was good for consumers is the real question. Well, After all, the cartel right now, I mean, as you say, it's mirrored very, very closely on the Texas Railroad Commission. Question, has the OPEC cartel saved the oil consumer from whipsawed prices of overproduction and underproduction? Not that I can tell. Oil volatility since OPEC started flexing its muscles in 1971, has increased dramatically in world crude oil markets. They have had, if, if anything, if we're, if they seem to have had the opposite effect of making markets more, not less volatile.
1: Well, I certainly don't doubt she can make that argument. Whether they can do that now or whether prices today are more volatile simply because of the lack of production behind the valve and and the other factors that we talked about, the increasing influence of the paper market, huge demand in China and India, uh, Malaysia, um, you know, all of these different markets coming into the business. Yes, prices are volatile. Uh, you know, uh, what, what do we do? I, you know, I don't have a better solution. I'm not saying we can do away with OPEC. You know, we can't turn the clock backwards. Um, but I think that OPEC hasn't, you know, whether they're in fact still a cartel, that's an open question. But, the, the, yes, we have volatile prices. I don't expect volatile prices are going to go away on oil or any other commodity in the in the foreseeable future. Um,
0: in your chapter titled A Few Suggestions, you lead with get the government the hell out of the energy business, unquote.
1: Redeems me here at Cato, doesn't it? I certainly have no
0: complaint with it. <laughs> But later in the chapter, suggests suggest that we, quote, embrace solar and nuclear and pursue new technologies and efficiency. Now, specifically in, in that chapter, you call for more government R&D, public promotion of nuclear power plant construction and mileage-based insurance policies, tax incentives for the purchase of fuel-efficient cars, and the use of, and I quote, every other tool in the shed to produce more energy. So my question is, isn't there a tension in this chapter between your statement Get the hell out of energy, with what you later then follow on a few paragraphs later with this litany of different interventions.
1: Um, uh, foolish consistency is the hobgoblin of middle minds, right? The uh, well, look, I, you know, I, I'm, I don't claim to have all the. Yes, uh, there is some inconsistency there. I, I, I think that what my my point about the government getting the hell out of the energy business is mandates and picking winners. Clearly, when we look at the ethanol scam, is a classic example of the government picking winners and forcing this mandate into the market. Um, I'm not opposed if, if, if the government wants to provide incentives to uh, consumers to buy higher mileage cars. I think that makes, some, uh, that makes some sense if, in fact, the government believes that oil uh, consumption is, is – is, uh, that we're producing – consuming too much oil. I don't necessarily think that uh, that's necessarily a bad thing. But if, if, the, if the goal is to decrease oil consumption, I think that that is a worthy goal. Um, I remember that, oh, that I also say that one of the things that we have to pursue is natural gas, increased consumption of natural gas. This is a net winner for everybody. Um, as far as solar, yes, I'm, I continue to be a believe in, believer in solar. I also, uh, looking at recent numbers, am, a, am fairly astonished at the amount of money that the government is spending on subsidies to the nuclear industry. Um, in a perfect world, we would have no subsidies, no fair, uh, no favor for any uh, any of these technologies, but uh, I think that there is a role for the government in terms of solar, um, and it clearly uh, because of the waste issue. There's going to be a continuing government role, like it or not, in the nuclear sector, um, and I don't see any way around that.
0: Well, I'm just curious because I agree with you; the government shouldn't pick winners and lo- shouldn't pick winners in the market. But it seems to me you've picked three: you've picked nuclear, you've picked solar, and uh, and what else did you just pick? Natural gas, right? So if they have merit, why does the government need to pick them? They're going to emerge in the market endogenously, right?
1: Fair enough. Um, I think what – I made those points because it's clear that in the current policy environment, policymakers are saying that CO2 is bad. That carbon dioxide, we have to limit carbon dioxide. So what are the fuels that we can turn to that have little or no CO2 emissions uh, or, or at least less than the fuels that we've been using? Clearly, nuclear is the only source going has enough capital and enough momentum behind it to provide... Fairly large increments of new power in a fairly, large, in a fairly short uh, amount of time at a fairly reasonable price. Solar, I think, is, it, we, it can provide uh, power at peak periods. It, it, we can put it on rooftops. It's low, low energy density, but still, I think that it has a lot of opportunity, more, I think, than wind. A natural gas, I've, I've uh, explained why I'm in favor of gas, and I think that uh, there are a lot of reasons why, in particular, if, if Congress is saying that CO2 is bad, why they should be looking more closely at natural gas, and yet they are not.
0: Um, Two more questions before I open it up to everybody. Are, are
1: these going to be softballs?
0: <laughs> oh, baby. <maybe>. Um, <laughs> one of the things I was curious about was your call for the super battery prize. How does this comport with getting the government the hell out of the energy business? I mean, after all, we're not talking about uh, uh, a public good here. We're talking about a private good. Sure. And secondly, I mean, the first fellow to come along with a super battery isn't going to make his profits based on claiming his ticket from the federal prize. He is going to make billions upon billions of dollars in private markets. It strikes me that as much as it would be neat to have a super battery, and I fervently hope to see one one day, this sounds to me like increasing the, the bounty on bin Laden's head from 25 to $26 million. I mean, the incentive is there in spades in the market. I'm not sure why the government needs to act.
1: Sure. Well, remember, uh, when I talk about the super battery prize, I also say it would be, you know, if the government wants to offer it, that's fine. I would rather see it come from the private sector. Mm-hmm. And we, I cite Richard Branson, who offers $25 million to anybody who can come up with a system to sequester large amounts of CO2. Well, in my view, it's better if we don't produce the CO2 in the first place, and therefore we should offer a tremendous financial incentive. I will take your point, and it's abundantly clear that, yes, the market offers huge uh, uh, potential bounties to whoever comes up with this super battery. But nevertheless, um, we also can look back in history and see how prizes of different types, the Ortigue Prize – you know Charles Lindbergh didn't fly across the Atlantic for his health. He was collecting the $25,000, if memory serves, the, from the, the, the hotelier uh, Orteague uh, d- because he was the first one to do it. So I think uh, I take your point about the market. Uh, there's plenty of incentive for the battery makers to come up with this, but look at the Ortigue prize. Look at the Ansari X prize that uh, uh, Paul Allen and uh, – I
0: think the difference is, is that prizes can, can prove useful when there aren't market incentives for people to do X, Y, or Z. Fair enough. And then you can provide them. But when the market incentive is there, I just don't see the need for an additional price, particularly when the winner of the super battery competition in the marketplace isn't going to be looking to the feds to help build his uh, vacation home. Fair enough. Um, the final point I want to get back to is something you started out with, which was your discussion about uh, our, the war in Iraq and, and why it happened. In, in your book, you argue that, quote, in large measure, uh, the war was about controlling the flow of that country's oil, unquote. Now that may be true. We oppose the the, the war here at Cato, so i'm not I, I don't feel compelled to defend the Bush administration or any of the uh, uh, any of the advocates of war but While that may be true, I have no way of knowing what are the secret hearts and minds of members of the administration or members of the Senate who voted for that resolution that allowed the use of force in Iraq. And I doubt you are, anybody else is. Mm-hmm. So what I'm curious about is, while it may be true, I have no way of knowing how it might be true, and I have no way of knowing how we might test that hypothesis. Now, have you thought about what a test, how we might test that hypothesis of
1: yours? Sure. Well... Look, to be clear, my, you know, my point about the war being about oil and the control of the oil, it was not in some, you know, theory about, uh, some conspiracy theory about we're going to hand the oil over to ExxonMobil or anybody else. Rather, it is, I think, uh, abundantly clear that the Bush administration decided that w- they could not allow Saddam Hussein to control the riches that came from Iraq's oil. And that that was, as I, I quote John Roberts, who's a very clever energy economist, who said, um, without oil, Saddam was nothing. With oil, he had real power, and the source of Saddam's power wasn't Iraq's date exports, it was Iraq's oil. And that was, in fact, the basis for Saddam's power. And when you look at the at – the, and I cite uh, Cobra 2, the, the, the book when you, uh, by uh, uh, the general – and uh, I can't recall his name – and the, uh, the New York Times reporter who wrote that the, by far and away the best financed and, and best researched part of the American invasion plan and the subsequent uh, 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 rebuilding plan of Iraq was all based on oil. This was by far and away the focus of the invasion. The very first American soldier who was killed in Iraq in, in action was killed in the oil field at Rumela. Um, the very first combat occurred on the, the Koral Amaya uh, 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 oil terminal in the Persian Gulf. Oil was the focus from the beginning of the invasion. And as Paul Wolfowitz uh, promised, oil was going to pay for the reconstruction. So, um, you know, uh, I, I think that there's no question. It's beyond question at this point that, the, that oil was, in fact, no matter how you slice it, was the fundamental motivation for the war because it was about wresting control of the control the control of the oil away from Saddam Hussein.
0: Well, I think that narrative is plausible and it may certainly be true. But I can think of five other narratives that are equally plausible and true. It might very well be that the administration really thought there were weapons of mass destruction there. It might really be the administration thought that Os- that uh, that Osama bin Laden and uh, Saddam Hussein either were an active alliance or might become an active alliance. It might be that he had unresolved Oedipal uh, uh, issues related to his father. I have
1: no idea. I, I thought it was about promoting democracy. I'm it might have
0: that. been about that. But, I
1: mean, this narrative... <laughs> I've, heard, I've heard a lot of different ones. Well,
0: that's the point. There's, there, there are a number of narratives that all seem reasonable and plausible, and how we might test these hypotheses is a mystery to me. And I'll tell you, the other thing that kind of... It, it, bothers me a bit about foreign policy discussions in this vein is while it's certainly true that Saddam Hussein is militarily more threatening with, with oil dollars than without this argument that without oil we wouldn't care about Saddam Hussein is a bit it's a bit hard to believe just on its face i mean after all afghanistan had no oil revenues dirt poor country we cared a lot about afghanistan for a brief period of time after 911 we care a lot about pakistan has no oil revenues but it's got a nuclear arsenal Fair. the idea that a country without oil revenues is a country we wouldn't worry about while i'd like to think that were true since i think we should worry a lot less about events around the world when it comes to the us military i'm not entirely sure that's been proven on the ground
1: so why haven't we deposed robert mugabe
0: we have, yeah, he's probably down on the list somewhere. Okay. <laughs> no well, look, f- no look.
1: Evidence. I mean, if we're if the if the objective is to depose bad actors, I mean, we need to send the eighty second Airborne to Africa because they got a lot of butt kicking to do. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, the, the fact is, I think. You know, I take your point about how do we test the hypothesis. I don't know of any ways to test the hypothesis, but I think that, you know, the record is clear when it comes to Iraq. America's interest in Iraq, uh, you know, you look at the at the pictures of Rumsfeld shaking hands with Saddam back in the 80s. You look at the U.S. efforts to help uh, Saddam increase oil exports in the 1970s. Um, you look at uh, uh, their efforts to help Saddam during the Iran-Iraq war with uh, shipments of arms and helicopters. It, the American relationship with Iraq has always been about oil, and I think that's incontrovertible, and I, I stand by, by my statements in the book.
0: Well, enough of me and now more of you, so I'm going to stop and take questions, so raise your hand, and then when I call on you, identify who you are and fire away. So the first question down in front with the fellow in the red tie, you know, if you wait for a microphone, that will come around so everyone else can hear you.
1: My name is Steve. No, I don't necessarily think so. Um, you know, the um, uh, one of the more interesting statistics, I, just, uh, I, I like to look at the BP Statistical Review. I, I cited it several times. Um, between 1990 and 2006, globally, the country with the fastest growing electricity generation was China, up more than 300%. The second fastest growing country in terms of electricity generation was Malaysia, uh, right at 300%. In that same time period, their GDP per capita increased threefold. None of that increase in electricity generation came at the expense of the U.S., They did it with their domestic gas and with coal that they imported from uh, Indonesia and Australia, and soon with some hydropower that they're going to bring on on stream. So it's not a zero-sum game. They can can put dams on their rivers. They can uh, produce their own coal. That's what India and China are doing. They're producing huge amounts of coal from their uh, their domestic resources. So no, I don't think it's a zero-sum game. Who's next?
0: Here in front.
3: Hi. Uh, my name is Bruce Averill. I'm uh, at the State Department, uh, Office of the Coordinator for Counterterrorism, following 30 years as an academic chemist and biochemist, uh, having moved to state a few years ago. A uh, couple of miscellaneous points. Uh, you could talk about corn being the most subsidized crop. It's also by far the most energy-intensive crop that one has uh, available, and that just and most of that energy does come from fossil fuels. And You talk about big oil being bad. Well, Last I saw, for statistics, the return on investment in the big oil is actually less than big pharma. And that's a statistic that is not very well publicized. I think it's uh, uh, potentially useful. Uh, I'd like to correct, uh, based on what I'm doing, just one correction. You had said that the Saudi Arabian National Guard is in charge of security at Saudi facilities. That's unfortunately not correct. It's the Ministry of the Interior. And they are standing up a force, as you mentioned, of 30 to 35,000. And until they get those there, they have some units of the National Guard uh, helping out. But I w- the key point that I didn't quite understand is your conflating oil and terrorism point. Uh, you say that uh, pretty clearly decreasing oil income is, n- is not necessarily going to result in political reform in the producing countries. And I ex- accept that, certainly. But I think the focus of Woolsey et al. has been that rather than focusing on decreasing energy consumption per se, it's transportation energy, which is basically liquid fuels, which is basically in our system petroleum. And I can't see how decreasing worldwide or at least U.S.-wide consumption of those fuels is not going to decrease the transfer of wealth from the consuming countries to the producing countries that's going to decrease their disposable income. And if you make a significant dent in disposable income, at some point I think that the 1% or whatever percent you want to say is siphoned off flowing to support terrorists via various money laundering and terrorist financing schemes has got to go down. So I, I think that I'd like to understand why you think that Terrorism and political reform are two sides of the same coin. I think it's more complicated than that. I don't think that you need political reform in the producing countries necessarily to decrease terrorism. I think going after the the funding sources by decreasing that massive wealth transfer would accomplish go you know, some ways perhaps toward accomplishing the goal of decrease of, of fighting terrorism. Sure. I'm interested in your response to that.
1: Sure. Well, I think it all hinges on what's some, you know, uh, this is the same argument that Woolsey uses, Bill Clinton has made it, uh, numerous other politicos have made it. When we buy a barrel of oil or whatever from, you, you know, you pick it, Saudi Arabia, Iran, some of that money ends up in the hands of terrorism. Well, how much is some? I don't know. How long's a piece of string? You know, this idea, I think the, the faulty logic here is conflating oil and terrorism. Look at the Madrid uh, train bombings. Look at the London bus bombings. There's no connection with petro-states there. Look at Timothy McVeigh, one of the, 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 the biggest act of terrorism in American history up to 9-11. Where's the, where's the oil link? Um, even assuming that we could reduce the price of oil, as Alan Reynolds pointed out, and I quoted him, you know, we've seen the price of oil collapse. Did that do away with terrorism? Not that I know of. What what about Iran? Let's uh, one that just occurs to me that we have purchased essentially zero oil from the Iranians since 1979. Has that prevented them from supporting Hamas and Hezbollah? Not that I've noticed. You know the, the point is if yes, we could reduce our, our oil consumption in the transportation fleet, and maybe that's a good idea. As I you know, we, we've had a discussion about that. But how much should we reduce it? If we go from 60 percent of our oil consumption and transportation, and we cut it to ten to 50 percent. Is that enough to get rid of terrorism? I, I don't know. I, I think it's just this false conflation of ideas that, you know, I think doesn't stand up to scrutiny. We had a terrorism long before we started using oil, and there will be terrorism after the last drop of oil is burned up. So, yes, we, could th- we can talk about reducing the income to, to the petro states, and we can theorize that it might reduce a, a terrorism in some way, but it might just be some. you know
0: i um I, I I think we should need we need to go back to how to this idea of testable hypotheses. It certainly seems reasonable enough to me that oil revenues get siphoned off to terrorists to some extent and that more money for terrorists is better uh, for terrorists than less money for terrorists but if you want to test this 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 naked woolsey hypothesis that Oil profits equals money to terrorism equals more terrorist activities equals more problem for the West. But we can do that. We have data. In In one of the uh, papers that was uh, out in front uh, this afternoon, we published the results of regression we did, looking at terrorist activity from 1981 to 2005 and then running regression analyses to see if there was any relationship between that activity and oil prices as a stalking horse for oil profits. No. No lagging indicators, no nothing, just no relationship. Uh, How might we explain that? Well, one explanation might be that terrorism is just a very low-cost opportunity. And that the uh, limiting factor is manpower, not money. Another explanation might be that oil revenues are a small part of the revenue stream, that garden variety crime is a bigger part of the revenue stream, uh, and other uh, revenue associated but not related directly to the oil industry, the fact that Bin Laden came from a construction industry family, not an oil family. So there are, other, there are things I can use to explain all that. But it seems to me that if you, it, it's a certainly reasonable sounding hypothesis. Can it be tested? Yeah. You test it, it isn't there yet. And until we get proof of that, I, I just – I'm not particularly persuaded by the argument.
1: If I can just jump in and add one quick one, and that is uh, in the book I quote G.I. Wilson, who was a former Marine colonel, just retired, voluntarily unretired, and was two weeks later in Ramadi in Iraq, uh, uh, has written a lot about asymmetric warfare and terrorism and is a very smart guy. And you know i i posed this question to oil and terrorism to him and he says look terrorism is a low cost operation it's not funded by oil dollars it's a it's a false it's a false uh, correlation it's funded by uh, uh, uh crime organized crime drugs uh the weapons trade human trafficking any number of things
0: we'll go into the uh, back a little, for a little while the fellow in the uh, blue shirt and the reddish tie
4: thank you sir as a, as a fellow former Tulsa, i uh sympathize with your idea about the iowa caucuses if we had oklahoma caucuses instead we'd all probably be driving around in natural gas vehicles by <laughs> lots of cup holders um, a question for you my name is richard ranger i'm with api but my question is for myself um, you're probably familiar with last year's facing hard truths study by the uh, national petroleum council and they spoke of several policy approaches that they felt out to be major guiding approaches and and two of them, I'd be interested in your response to, and and I guess yours too, Jerry, would be um, they spoke that that we have a lot of coal, and so the, and and I believe the authors of the study said something to the fact that we're going to have to find a solution to clean coal. We're going to have to find the technologies to utilize the coal we have um, to for, for a sustainable economy and and a, and a uh, appropriate energy posture. They also spoke about um, energy efficiency measures as being important. Uh, Jerry critiqued them pretty strongly when uh, that study was presented here uh, a couple of months ago. But I'm, I'm curious as to your sense of the significance of those two issues in the overall energy picture, both the coal problem and then the uh, role of energy efficiency. Sure.
1: Well first we're gonna be using coal for a long time. Um, clean coal, you know, we just the government just canceled the Future Gen project, uh, 1.2 billion. It was over cost, over, uh, over, uh, you know, running over in terms of uh, the time projections. Um, I'm not so sanguine that that, you know, this idea that we can sequester CO2 and do so in an, in a uh, cost-effective manner is anywhere close uh, in terms of uh, uh, feasibility. Uh, the current issue of Energy Tribune, um, uh, I think we have a very interesting graphic. Um, I used uh, projections by Voslav Smil. He expects that, uh, he looks at global CO2 emissions and says uh, 10%, if we just wanted to sequester 10% of global CO2 emissions, that is approximately equal to the volume, daily volume of oil production globally. So I just took that on a daily basis, took 10%. On a daily basis, if you just take 10% of global CO2 and you take CO2 and, and compress it and refrigerate it down to its critical point, that... CO2 uh, volume, 10% of global CO2 would fill 40 VLCC supertankers. Now, where do you sequester that volume? That's just 10%. I mean, it gives you an idea of the volume at hand. Uh, as far as coal to liquids, again, this is something that is always 10 years out. You know, we're close, so if we, we can make coal to liquids. I saw, I was in South Africa three years ago, I saw the Sasol plant there. Um, it's a very dirty process. Um, efficiency. Um, I don't know whether Jerry and I didn't talk about this necessarily, but I have a point in a section of my book. Amory Lovins has really made his whole career on this idea that energy efficiency is going to lower consumption. If you look at the new energy bill, the Energy Independence and Security Act, there are something like 300 mentions of energy efficiency in that bill. Um, Energy efficiency, the, the, the Jevons paradox has yet to be proven wrong. In 1865, William Stanley Jevons theorized that energy efficiency doesn't decrease consumption, it increases it. It's counterintuitive, but uh, all the all the work that's been done, that I, the reputable work that I've seen since then, in fact, uh, shows just that very fact. And there's a new book out on the Jevons Paradox uh, by four authors that I just recently reviewed, and they say this is the fact, that efficiency doesn't lower consumption, it increases it.
0: Well, it, it's really not too much of a paradox. If you lower the marginal cost of something, you're getting increased demand for that something. So, you know, that stands to reason. The one thing that's interesting about the energy independence discussion in coal is how politicians conflate energy independence and good environmental outcomes when there's actually tremendous tension between the two. For instance, uh, around the Super Bowl, I saw ads where Arnold Schwarzenegger and other tough-looking governors from the West were standing around saying it's time for the feds to act to give us energy independence and a cleaner environment. Well, the quickest way to energy dependence is coal to liquids. Uh, And in fact, it may very well be that coal to liquids can compete under today's prices if they were sustained over time. Uh, but the CO2 issues are just stunning. You know, so they're not the same thing. But politicians conflate the, th- the two because they both test real well, and politicians are habituated to say things that test well, whether they're internally coherent or not is irrelevant, I guess. Uh, in the back, sir. Uh,
5: my name is Fosin Ebniussev at International Petroleum Enterprises, and I'd like to commend you both on, on the wonderful uh, discussion and discussion um, talk. Uh, A few comments and a question. On uh, the terrorism uh, comment, I think Northern Ireland was a major problem for a long, long time, and oil money was not involved, and unfortunately most of the support came from this country. So a solution, a political solution, is indeed something we should look forward to uh, in in, uh, the troubled regions today. Uh, Afghanistan and Pakistan are not major producers, but in fact, uh, even to date, uh, uh, they have been looked at as a conduit to Central Asian oil and gas and also even Siberian oil. Uh, Saudis have not been um, all that uh, aggressive in increasing production and on the upstream, but uh, Saudis and other OPEC uh, countries have been a major force In the downstream sector, particularly the the refining, where ExxonMobil, the the largest refiner, the largest uh, company in the world, has been refusing to invest in the refining side, they have. And they've been very aggressive, uh, indeed. Higher prices, I think, have uh, actually helped a great deal because with lower prices, the consumption would have been much higher. Uh, it is not OPEC that is uh, really creating all these problems. Wars, geopolitical issues, sanctions, uh, these are all major factors that have been uh, actually impacting uh, the, the, the prices. And everyone is paying for it. The Japanese and the Chinese, uh, you know, with the support that they have given. To the dollars, to the 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 policies and so on. I think it's uh, you know with the support of the bad policies and the bad decisions. Unfortunately, I think they're going uh, getting along uh, as well. Uh, The uh, um, national guards uh, issue in, in Saudi Arabia they do provide a layer of security. And if you recall. In the case of Abkhazia last year, uh, one of the, uh, uh, the the groups that are in in fact uh, supporting the security of the infrastructure are the national guards. But the question is on the uh, the uh, uh, issue of conservation that no one talks about. Unfortunately, even the National Petroleum Council did not really talk about it on their the uh, executive summary 40 some pages long, there was not even a mention of conservation. Later on, they said, well, we talked about efficiency, because if it, conservation apparently has a negative connotation. No one wants to talk about it. Instead, they like to, you know, talk about efficiency. Would you please talk about conservation a little bit? And isn't it really the best alternative available? Thank you.
0: You're the
1: ho- I'm the host. You're the guest. <laughs> I, I don't know what conservation means. I mean, you know, does it mean we voluntarily use less? If so, I think that that's happening. And I think conservation is driven by price. You know, people will use less; they'll drive less when the price is painful enough. So, I, yeah, but but what? Fair enough. But but promote what? Tell people to drive less, to inflate their tires. I don't understand what. I mean.
5: Overconsumption, the, the problem that we're in is... I'm sorry, thank you. Um, mostly it's because people are not really educated about the, uh, you know, the troubles we're in.
1: Well, but I think that... Environmental issues. Fair enough. But I think that 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 they are being, you know, the time. The New York Times, Jad Mouad had a piece just the other day in the New York Times saying that gasoline consumption has dropped a half a percentage point. You know, I think that there is some... Uh, people are using less because it's costing them more. And I think that, you know, the punchline is, I think overall price matters. People are only we're only going to move away from fossil fuels and move on to something else that's cleaner, more efficient uh, uh, and and or more convenient when the price gets high enough. And that's what's driving innovation. And so, uh, you know, I don't know how we jawbone people into not driving to work or, you know, doing making use of what the energy that they need. So, I kind of take your point, but I don't I, I don't know how we achieve conservation and without mandating it or higher prices.
0: I actually agree with, with just about everything you said, but two things in particular. Well, I would expect We're,
1: you to agree on everything. Just. Not
0: everything. It, it hasn't <laughs> happened yet. Um the, the fact that OPEC nations in Saudi Arabia are investing having a refining just tells me the state owned enterprises are still a pretty bad idea. I mean, given the returns on refining it's not necessarily a, a statement of wise economic action that the Saudis are investing in this stuff. Um, as far as conservation is concerned, at the end of the day, consumers have to decide whether the services they get from gasoline at three twenty four a gallon uh, are greater than the value of three twenty four, less than the value of three twenty four, or not. And each person is going to have different dis- different decisions to make based on the need for that gasoline, their own marginal utility, and all sorts of considerations. I don't think it's a matter of ignorance. I think that you're on to something in that people are today willing to pay a much higher price for fuel than they are willing to pay before. Why? My guess is that global economic prosperity has increased demand for fuels and increased the ability to pay, and thus you're getting more people willing to pay. But I don't think it's out of ignorance. I don't think people need to be educated that, you know, if you turn down the thermostat, you'll save some money. I think people understand that. But I think what vexes people in the, in, in the public arena is that they think that people are willing to pay for energy they shouldn't be willing to pay for. They should value the money more than the energy or something else. Maybe the energy isn't priced right because environmental externalities aren't included. That's a whole separate conversation. Uh, but the fact is, is that it really does bother people uh, that some people drive SUVs and pay that price and don't really care. It bothers people that others like me, I have a, I have a mid-century modern house, lots of glass. It could never get built today. We never passed efficiency codes. It'd be illegal. I do have somewhat higher bills for it. I don't care. I love glass houses. And you can tell I throw a lot of stones, and I probably should. (laughs) So I don't think it's really an education matter, but I think what's lurking behind your question is absolutely right. A lot of people are willing to pay money for energy, and they really don't care. At these prices, they're still paying. Or they may care, but they're still paying. They're making that voluntary transaction. That tells me they believe that their utility is advanced with the energy, that the energy is more valuable than the money. And that's a calculation that we can't guide for people. I'll get to you in one second, but Marlo has been waving his hand, and I, I should answer to him. Uh, Mar-
6: Marlo Lewis with the Competitive Enterprise Institute. Uh, this question is for you, Robert. Um, I haven't read your book yet, but I bought it.
1: Well, that's good. Uh, you don't have but, to read it. You just have to buy it.
6: But, uh <laughs> No, because of the line of work I'm in, I have to read it, too. But I'm looking forward to that. My question is, do you address the argument that Woolsey and Gaffney and others make that the price of gasoline that we pay at the pump doesn't reflect the true price of petroleum, which includes all the defense expenditures for the Persian Gulf and the Iraq War? And you yourself argue that the Iraq War is really about oil. And uh, that seems to me... Um, a, a very uh, uh, big problem for us if that argument is true—that that actually gasoline is really costing ten or fifteen dollars a gallon, and uh, and that if you know if we had an honest uh, pricing system, we would all be paying that much for it. So I, I'm wondering, do you deal with that argument in your book, and I, how? I,
1: yeah, I touch on that argument. Um, uh, the the study was done by uh, a fellow who is connected with the Center America Free Coalition. In fact. Um, and, you know, I understand the rationale, but, you know, was the war about, you know, I agree that the the motive for the war was to wrest control of the oil away from Saddam, but the rationale behind the motive was well, terrorism, right? So, uh, you know, is is this segment, how do you segment out the, the DOD budget? Is it, are we fighting worldwide terrorism? And that that's the, that's, you know, if you look at the quadrennial review from the DOD recently, that's the big issue. We're fighting global terrorism. So can we? does that mean the whole budget is assigned to terrorism? And if Iraq was, in fact, about terrorism and WMD, then how do you say, well, it's X percent? So um, I take your point, and I understand their argument, but I also think that, you know, parsing the DOD budget and saying, well, we can apportion this amount to this country, or this amount is because of Afghanistan, when you know the the DOD's Stated mission now is the global war on terror. <clears throat> so, how do you separate it out? I don't know.
0: You know, it, it's amusing to me. The, the, the Set America Free Coalition gives away the game with the very title of the organization. I mean, what do they want to set America free to do? Bounce rubble in the Middle East. Their complaint is that we are not, we are too inhibited, and that if we didn't import oil, we could settle scores and, and, uh, and, and do right abroad and not have to worry about these vulnerabilities. We wouldn't have to worry about the Saudis and worry about public opinion on the Arab street. And the idea. Idea that well gee, we import oil, so we incur military costs. Well, the military costs that James Woolsey would have us incur are nothing compared to what they are today. they are they would be stunningly high but I've had a lot of coffee, so I had to throw that out. (laughs) The the danger with with these events is that we have a nice reception upstairs, and if if we prattle on too long, everybody peels off and leaves where they get to enjoy it. So we're going to have only one last question, and I'll let you ask it. And then for any of you who still want to talk about this or ask questions of uh, Robert, you can do so at our reception upstairs.
2: In the interest of full disclosure, let me say that I drive an SUV. Um but the uh the the american lifestyle is clearly the global winner um with china and Indus, and india and coming online um that uh proposition is mathematically unsustainable at any at any price so clearly we are betting on human innovation to bring online, online other sources of energy um, I just changed the windows in my house, um, to a technology that's essentially triple film. The people who, from whom I purchased those windows guaranteed me that my energy costs would go down by at least 50% or they would pay. It's written in a contract. And they have also a statement that if every window in the United States had this technology, it would reduce our, our energy consumption for that um, use by what did they say? Two thirds? That's an impressive number. There are analyses which show that you can reduce the urban on, urban heat envelope by whatever the percentage is through, um, through rooftop gardens and cascading gardens and that sort of thing, incorporating the well-known photosynthesis outcome that um, life um, absorbs uh, CO2. There are dynamics to this energy uh, discussion which go beyond fuel consumption. It is not a linear proposition. We've got, you know, what are they called? Icebergs that are melting up there and, you know, and you've got tipping effect. All kinds of things that can go on as an outcome of this dynamic. I think that we shoot ourselves in the foot by looking at it as though it's a sartoris paribus proposition. Um, and, and that pushing for energy independence causes all kinds of other conversations, very useful conversations to go on, which have impacts on innovation, which have impacts on behavior, which have impacts on culture, which are important. Um, so, so, uh, in this crowd, I hear the, I hear the, uh, I hear the oil bias, but, um, but, but as a, but but as a culture, as a, as a society, I think we have a, we have an obligation, a moral obligation to, to put this whole conversation in its very important context fair enough <laughs> thank you
0: well thank you all for coming and uh, we appreciate it and uh, i want you to join me in, in thanking uh, robert Bryce for a
3: wonderful conversation.
0: and i look forward to seeing you up over a glass of wine in our winter garden thank you